Hey, everybody. I'm Amna, the host of Uncomfortable. As you know, the goal here is to have honest conversations about some of the issues that seem to be dividing America right now. What we like to do each week is invite on a thought leader who can have a real conversation about the things that he or she believes to be true and also tell us a little bit about why they believe what they do. Joining me today, I'm really pleased to say, is Michael Medved, who's a nationally syndicated radio talk show host and best-selling author. Uh, Michael, your daily show reaches 300 stations across the country of more than 4 million listeners. Thank you so much for being with me today. What a pleasure. I really do appreciate it. So as you mentioned, as I mentioned, we'd like to hear a little bit about people, where they come from, where they grew up, how they grew up, how they came to believe the things that they do today. So tell me about you. Well, I was born in Philadelphia, and um, my mom was an immigrant, actually. She was a, a refugee from Germany in 1934, which was a very good year, thank you to my grandparents, uh, for leaving Nazi Germany, <laughs> if you're a Jewish family, as, as they were, as we are. Mm -hmm. And uh, m my dad's parents were immigrants. Uh, he was the first one in his family uh, who was born in this country just about a year after his mom got here. And uh, my grandmother arrived, joining her husband, and in, in, she arrived in 1925, and my dad was born in 26. So uh, my background was basically very much uh, that of upwardly mobile uh, immigrant Jewish parents who uh, believed that education was the right way to succeed in the United States, which I believe is one of those things that's characterized immigrant families forever. And I was actually born, my dad served in World War II, and then uh, he attended University of Pennsylvania on scholarship. I was born before my dad even got his undergraduate degree, and he went on to get master's degrees and his PhD in physics. And uh, may rest in peace, my dad had a wonderful career as a scientist and entrepreneur and academic uh, in the solid state physics arena. So you were raised mostly in Philadelphia, is that right? Uh, until I was six. And then my parents uh, <laughs> did the unthinkable at the time. After my dad finished his PhD, uh, they went out to San Diego, where my dad worked in the defense industry. And then uh, I grew up in San Diego. And then my parents committed what to me seemed an unthinkable act of child abuse at the time. <laughs> uh, when I was a junior in high school, they moved from San Diego to L.A., and I graduated from high school in Los Angeles at uh, Palisades High School in 1965, which was eventually, a little bit later, the subject of my first book. How do you think that growing up at that time, in that way, in the way that you did, in the family that you did, coming from the immigrant background that you did, how do you think that informed the way you see our country and the world today? Did it play a big role? Of course. And the one thing uh, that was most striking to me, and part of it has to do with Philadelphia, too, I, I was raised with an insanely intense love of America. And I know that a lot of other children of immigrants uh, feel the same thing. And it's one of the reasons that I strongly differ from many of my conservative colleagues when it comes to the current day issue of immigration. Uh, my... I wouldn't exist if America were not a, a refuge uh, for people who were facing uh, in, incredible hardship. My, my dad 
always considered his own life to be something of a miracle. He had uh, five older sisters, five, who died in Ukraine during World War One, and then the Russian Revolution, the Russian Civil War, before my grandmother finally got out and got to come to the United States, where my dad was conceived when my grandparents reunited. In any event, all of this created, I think for me, and, and my mother's own story of her father, who had served in the Kaiser's army in World War I, fleeing with his family in 1934 after things started getting very ugly under the new Reichskanzler, the new chancellor of Germany, Adolf Hitler. Uh, America's a miracle, and it's, it's, it's full of miraculous stories. And even uh, though my parents were both, uh, certainly when I was growing up, they were both dedicated liberals, uh, very much involved with the liberal end of the Democratic Party, uh, they were they were people like most liberals at that time who were extremely patriotic and and believed and they were right that they owed everything every blessing in their lives to this miraculous nation state called the United States of America. You mentioned how you differ from some of your fellow conservatives now, not just talk show hosts, but really across the, the political spectrum. Um, and when people talk about you, often when when you're referred to, they use the phrase thoughtful conservative as if to, as if to set you apart <laughs> as if, from others. As if that were an oxymoron. Well, right. so I wonder what you make of it. It is used so frequently. I wonder what you what you make of it. I, I First of all, I, I take it as a tremendous compliment. I know that there are people in the talk radio industry who say, oh, God, thoughtful, that's deadly. You can't be that. You've got to be angry all the time. I, I, one of the things, many things I loved about what Ronald Reagan used to say is he frequently used the line. He said, I'm a conservative, but I'm not angry about it. And, and it seems to me that's a line that, that we ought to remember. One of the things that, uh, many, many destructive aspects of this last campaign in 2016 that, that I feel very profoundly is the notion that anger is an effective tool in American politics. Uh, I, I'm a student of history. I, I'm, I majored in American political history at Yale. And I, uh, a, a number of my books, uh, about half of my books have been uh, about American history and and different political issues mm-hmm. and uh, po- political manipulation in uh, the American past. One thing I can say with great assurance is anger has never been a particularly effective political tool in American politics. This has not been traditionally an angry nation. It's a grateful nation. Uh, the, the American story gives very little grounds for anger. And one of the things it seems to me that conservatives ought to learn from our past, because part of the whole idea of being a conservative is that, is that you learn from the past, is that we need more emphasis on gratitude and less emphasis on guilt or another G word, the idea of that you've been gypped, uh, the feeling that somehow you're missing out. And and, and this, it, it seems to me, is a... Uh, a corrective that I like to provide on my radio show and that I think is, is very important if there is going to be a future for anything like today's conservative movement. You know, I'm curious because in, on your show, you sort of get 
not at all in a scientific way, but a very anecdotal and very real-time sort of feedback of how conversations are shifting, how people's thought processes are evolving. evolving. And I'm, you talked about 2016. I do want to talk about this a little bit more because that, I think, is where a lot of people point towards to show the difference between the way that you process events versus how uh, other conservatives may have processed them. And I'm curious in your interactions, when people call into your show to express whatever sentiment or ask whatever question, have you noticed a change, particularly in the last two years, in terms of how people are talking or what they're talking about? Yes, yes, entirely. And and this is something, uh, uh, Amna, that I, I've I've just been thinking about recently very intensely, and it relates to Game of Thrones, right? I mean, it's part of <laughs> there part is our of first what Game of Thrones as, reference, okay? <laughs> right, as journalists, if, if, right now it's it's all Game of Thrones world. We're just living in it, right? <laughs> and I, the the problem with the Trump administration and the whole Trump revolution, uh, to use the T word, um, in in American politics has been. Uh, sort of injecting elements of Game of Thrones into American life. And this is what our founders feared. When our founders feared, and this this is something I've just been thinking about and I'm writing about right now, which is how could it be that our greatest founders were deeply worried about what they call faction? Mm-hmm. In uh, the Federalist Papers, uh, uh, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and, and John Jay all worried about faction. Mm-hmm. And what what were they worried about and how could they be such hypocrites? Because James Madison and Alexander Hamilton went on to help create our two first political parties. The answer is when they were worried about faction, they were worried about Game of Thrones. They were worried about Game of Trump, where everything is based on personality, where people rally. In Shakespeare, you learn that, that in the Henriad, the Wars of the Roses, uh, it, it was all based on personality. There was no ideological difference between the House of York and the House of Lancaster. It was all based upon your loyalty to individual warlords and and people who uh, become the obsessive concern. Is he a great personality or is he a great scoundrel? And this is the worst thing about our politics at the moment. You can't have a serious political conversation about ideas or about legislation or about actually making people's lives better. It's all about whether uh, Donald Trump is somehow magically, because of his huge gifts as a businessman, making America great again, or whether he is cheapening and degrading our democracy. The worst aspect of his impact on our democracy, on our political traditions, is making everything about the cult of personality, which has always represented the worst in American politics, Whereas the best has to do with the battle of ideas, which has always been vigorous in the American past, not so much so today. No, let me ask you about Mr. Trump, though, because you did not support him at all during the campaign. You spoke out. I'm very proud to say no. You spoke out about that. Yeah. You you called him insecure. You called him unprepared. um, You called him unhinged. And that sets you apart, (laughs) right, from a lot of your fellow hosts uh, in the conservative radio world, do you find people now who, well, let me ask you about that, first of all. In in that time and space, you got a lot of backlash for speaking out Tremendous. about that. Yeah. So tell me a little bit yeah. about that. It, did, it, did that surprise you, the degree to which people came at you at that time? Yes, because, uh, what, again, it's it's uh, there's a famous story about 
um, Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson. And uh, Thoreau, as, as some people know, actually went to jail because he refused to pay taxes to support the Mexican War, which he was correct that a lot of people who were behind the Mexican War believed it was a war for the extension of slavery. Thoreau believed that was evil and he didn't support it and he went to jail. So uh, Emerson visited him in jail and apparently said, uh, David, uh, what are you doing in there? And Thoreau apparently said to Emerson or reportedly said to Emerson, no, the question, uh, Waldo, is what are you doing out there? And (laughs) it seems to me that there's a similar kind of story regarding conservatives and and President Trump. I, I, I think the, the question is not so much how could uh, those of us who were Trump skeptics uh, uh, remain skeptical as it was, what was it about Trump that ended up reassuring uh, conservatives to rally to his support? And I, I simply do not believe that Hillary Clinton, as much as I never supported her for president and I have deep doubts about her ideology and some very deep doubts about her competence, I I don't believe that Hillary Clinton represented evil incarnate. And this notion of demonization of your opponents in American politics, it seems to me, is despicable. Look, I think America is going to survive fine the Trump presidency. We would have also survived a Clinton presidency. And to me, one of the most despicable things that some of my colleagues said was when they said, well, if if Hillary wins, this could be the last election we ever have or the last election that ever means anything or it's the end of the republic. Uh, Adam Smith, who is something of a conservative hero, of course, he wrote Wealth of Nations, Mm -hmm. quote, coincidentally, 1776, same year our country began. Adam Smith once said there is a great deal of ruin in a nation. Uh, meaning that that when when people say, well, if if this happens, the nation will be ruined, America will be fine. But I think we're going through a difficult period. And and Amna, let me just continue because you had asked me about something which is kind of unpleasant to talk about, which is uh, the destructive impact on friendships, on business associations, um, on your professional standing. Did you experience that those I, on a personal level too? Enormously, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have uh, friends uh, with whom I've been genuinely close for 40 years with whom I'm not on speaking terms because – and it's not my initiative. It's because, honestly, people became so convinced that the struggle uh, – and it wasn't even so much the struggle for Trump as the struggle against Hillary – was a struggle of uh, against pure evil. And, and my question would be, okay, you can say that Hillary Clinton is misguided about her approach to health care or taxes or um, the human life issue or anything you want. Right. But to I- identify, and, and yes, part of this has to do with the fact that I, I knew Hillary in law school. And you both attended Yale actually, Law at the same time, right? We did, and and we were in the same section in contracts class, and we knew each other well. And I've written about it before, and if I and I've gotten all kinds of grief for writing about it before. Is she in? She is an unquestionably sincere, and decent, and kind person, 
And does, does that mean that I've ever supported her in any of her political races? No. But is that but, like a revolutionary uh, thing to say in conservative circles? Yes. <laughs> and, and that's, that's real, tr- truly ridiculous. It's absurd. And by the way, I would say the same thing. I, I, I don't believe that uh, I'm look, I do question as many people do the the mental health of the president of the United States, which is a terrible thing. And I wish I, could, I, I didn't have to say that. But do but you have I legitimate question, concerns on that front? Because it is something that people throw around quite a bit. Do you have legitimate concerns on that front? My wife is a clinical psychologist, and uh, she's the smartest psychologist that I know. She's also written some best-selling books. And um, look, I, it, it's it's impossible to diagnose someone for, from a distance. But, but recently... Uh, President Trump has become obsessed, and I've never seen anything like it, with attacking somebody else that I know from law school, uh, Richard Blumenthal, the senator from Connecticut, yes, who is a decent human being. He's wrong on everything politically, but for goodness sake, I mean, talk to other people in the Senate. Senator Blumenthal is a decent guy. He is painfully sincere. He served with honor in the United States Marine Corps Reserve for six years. And the same way that we conservatives insisted that Dan Quayle did not deserve to be reviled because he served in the reserves during the Vietnam era. Mm -hmm. This attack by someone who's never worn the uniform named Trump on on Senator Blumenthal, which ran over the period of nine hours. Now, you're talking about what is this about for, for anyone out there who missed it? He sort of went after Senator Blumenthal in a series of tweets about his military. He said never in history. He said never in history has someone lied as Mm -hmm. uh, lied and misled the American people as terribly as Richard Blumenthal did. And what it's based upon is a reference to uh, people who served during the Vietnam era, as he did, implying that he personally had served in Vietnam, which he did not. Mm -hmm. But for, for goodness sake, I mean, um, okay. Well, let me ask you this. That's, if there, I mean, I know we're sort of talking around the edges of this because we don't have any hard facts on this. As you mentioned, you cannot diagnose someone from a distance. But it seems like you have very real, potentially very significant concerns about the man who is currently in the highest office in this country. How how do you? I don't I don't, I don't think I'm alone, Amna. No, I, mean, I, I don't I think believe that, that you are. But I'm asking you from your perspective because, in in terms of the people who come to you every day, the millions of people who listen to what you have to say, do they share those concerns too? No, they hate it. And and again, the most common response I get from listeners, and it's very uncomfortable because you become attached to your listeners. And one of the things about talk radio is it sort of theater of the mind. I have regular callers to the show who've mm-hmm. called over the years, and there are probably, oh, 100 who, uh, who call very, very regularly, and you know who they are. And, and one of my regular callers has been Annie from the Bronx. And if Annie, Annie from the Bronx is listening to this, she'll know. I, I, I recognize Annie, and she, she has been such a big supporter of me and of the show. And she believes I am worse than Benedict Arnold, uh, worse than Judas Iscariot. I mean, how could I betray the the great Donald J. Trump when he is is and and this is it's painful because 
again, these are these are people who've made my entire career possible. And I, uh, by the way, and I will also add what I've said on the air repeatedly, and I, I'm I'm very glad to repeat it here, Amna, is that that I want and pray for President Trump's success. I want him to do the right thing. I want the country to flourish. I'm glad the stock market is up. I'm glad that illegal border crossings are down. I am glad that Neil Gorsuch, who I think is a fine appointment, is on the Supreme Court. But you know what? Merrick Garland wasn't a bad appointment either. Mm -hmm. And is also a good guy. And this is this is what we need most. And if there's one thing that I want to plead with my fellow citizens, liberal, conservative, can can we recognize what what people in the past have recognized, with the horrible exception of the Civil War, which cost us seven hundred thousand dead bodies, mm-hmm. can can we recognize that this is what Jefferson said in in his first inaugural? He said, "As we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. We have called by different names, brethren of the same principle." And we basically everybody who's in public life. I've gotten to know people. Mm-hmm. In, in both the Democratic side and the Republican side of Congress. And they are, with very few exceptions, all decent, public-spirited human beings who take on this work because they want to make the country better. And if we can't return to that spirit, then, then I am worried about the future of our politics. Let me ask you, though, in, in reconciling your support for President Trump now... You mentioned two things that a lot of people pointed uh, support, to. That support does not exist. Uh, hoping for his success exists. Understood. In other words, you're not opposed to his presidency. Uh, well, no, I wouldn't go that far. I am appalled <laughs> at his presidency, frankly. Uh, uh, but does that mean won? I'm opposed? No, I'm appalled at some of his conduct. I mean, I think some of his conduct as president has been um, extraordinarily destructive. I, look, this entire his entire handling of the RussiaGate matter has been self-destructive in a profound way, and has also, I think, been been deeply damaging to our institutions. When when you're going to treat James Comey and Robert Mueller as some kinds of uh, uh, demonic forces and and enemies, uh, you, you've degraded our politics. And and for goodness sake, Rod Rosenstein, right, who is a, a very, very deeply public, public spirited individual and and President Trump's willingness to attack his his fellow Republicans. And and again, I'm, I, I, I would say that I am close to as close as I am to any current political figure to Senator John McCain. And one of the things the, the main thing that horrified me about Donald Trump in the very early stages of his candidacy, and that was back in 2012 when he was running the first time, mm-hmm. was the whole embrace of birtherism. Right. I am very proud to say I am the first conservative by a big margin of advantage yes. who unequivocally denounced birtherism in all its forms. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and that's absurdity. And yes, it does have a racist element, and it's totally unacceptable. But let me and, ask you, Michael, let me ask you about that, because there's two things I'm hearing, and I'm, I'm not quite sure how to reconcile them, but you, you say that you want him to succeed. At the same time, you're making the case for the very many ways in which he's undermining, undermining rather, 
our institutions, destroying the things that hold up our democracy that made us the country that we are today. So why do you want him to succeed? Because I want him to straighten up and fly right. In other words, to 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 be very clear here, Amna, and I don't think there is a contradiction. Um, one of the, the things on which I have also been controversial, because I've been critical of my fellow conservatives, is there was a very prominent conservative voice at the beginning of the Obama administration who said, I want him to fail. And I was critical of that. Mm-hmm. I thought, look, American patriots want a new president to succeed. You don't want him to fail for partisan reasons. And I do think it was a problem for conservatives that some of us never accepted Barack Obama as a legitimate president of the United States. He deserved that. He had won election. He'd won election twice with actual majorities of the popular vote. At the same time, you can't nearly apply the same set of concerns that you have about President Trump to President Obama <laughs> in any way. No, I'm, I'm, I'm being true. serious on that. You know, if for anyone who opposed the presidency of, of of Mr. Obama did so for another set of reasons, the reasons that you're talking about are crucial to our actual functioning as a country for the future of our democracy. Those are very grave and significant concerns on a level that we haven't the, had they in are, a very they long are. time. They are, but it also takes us into that Game of Thrones area that I don't want to go. In other words... President Trump seems to crave everything being about his personality. And uh, I I am very troubled and put off by his personality. I I don't I I, I'm very I'm very blessed by the fact that my 24 year old son has not has grown up very differently from from President Trump. And, And yes, I think it's a quaint notion to think that, gee, I'd like my son to be just like the president of the United States. But that's an old American notion, and I know that many, many Americans felt that about Barack Obama. Uh, Certainly you could have felt that about, oh, President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush or President Reagan um, or or, uh, President Harry Truman or many presidents of both parties in the past, President Eisenhower. Um, But you're saying you don't have to feel that way about the president. No, you don't. And what what you have to do is recognize – that some of President Trump's announced agenda, it seems to me, would be beneficial for the country. And uh, in that sense, I want him to succeed. The main agenda for any president of the United States is keeping us safe. Mm -hmm. And I, I very, very much want and pray for President Trump to succeed in that. Do I want to see him succeed in remaking the Republican Party into a populist nationalist party from being the conservative party that it still is today? No, I want him to fail in that. Do I want him to succeed in winning a second term? Okay, that's more complicated because I would like to see the country succeed enough in the next three and a half years so that when November uh, to 2020 comes along that uh, that that people will want the country to continue on on the happy and prosperous and peaceful course that it is. Do I expect that President Trump will be that kind of president? No, I mean I've said this on the air. I think uh, it's entirely possible and conceivable that he will not serve out his term because I think things are that bad and that poisonous in Washington D.C. 
were even members of our own party. I, I am a great admirer of Senator Jeff Flake, who has been a guest on my show. He did a full hour on my show. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he's <laughs> he's been sort of uh, treated and a lot of uh, talk radio as the skunk at the garden party. Uh, but, uh, look, uh, Senator Flake, to me, is an illustration of Profiles in Courage, which was a book that another senator named John Kennedy wrote about uh, great examples of courage and independence on the part of U.S. senators. So a couple of things you mentioned earlier stick out to me because we we heard this a lot during the campaign and we hear it again now. And people point towards two things in particular as sort of signs that the Trump presidency is working and that this is good for all Americans. And they point to the stock market, and which is absolutely doing well. And they point towards Neil Gorsuch's appointment, which was, of course, a huge reason for a lot of people. And for some people, the only reason that they could get behind Mr. Trump as a candidate last year. But I'm, I guess I want to ask you, because this is a question we hear a lot in, in among people who didn't support him, which is sort of what about the damage done in the meantime? That, yes, our economy can be doing well. M- maybe, you know, the unemployment low, the employment levels will hold and all those things will be fine. But in the meantime, you also have a president who says very disparaging things about certain American communities. You have, you know, ideas being tossed around as if it's casual, normal conversation now about banning entire groups or removing entire groups from the military. These are not things that were discussed because they were considered un-American, unconstitutional in some cases when you look at the ban and the way it's been challenged by federal judges. So how do you process that? What about some of the things that are are sources of pain and and concern and potential damage for parts of America. I think they are. I think those are all profound concerns and they're very much concerns that I share. I, I again, during the campaign, uh, the so-called Muslim ban uh, was was something that I instantaneously denounced. It co- is completely un-American. It is on its face unconstitutional. Um, we, we don't administer religious tests here, and the courts have seen that that doesn't apply just to U.S. citizens. It also applies to things like entry into the United States. As an American Jew and a, a proud and very active member of the Jewish community for basically my whole life, uh, the the idea that someone would apply a religious test for travel mm-hmm. in the United States is is deeply offensive. I, I totally unacceptable. And let me go back to again this contradiction that I'm I'm trying to live out every day. Talking to it seems like a, a struggle. I'm my be my listeners, yeah. <laughs> it, it's it is it is a struggle. There's no there's no doubt about it. It's not easy. And and again, I've got three hours a day. And first of all, I, I try as as hard as I possibly can to avoid talking only about President Trump. There are other things that are worth talking about in the country. Of course. But but what what I'm not I think what you what you're bringing up is a question that I get from listeners frequently and I try to answer it consistently and honestly is people say, well, look now, look at the stock market is up and, and uh, they'll say border crossings are down. We have uh, fewer illegal immigrants coming to this country. Actually, we had fewer illegal immigrants coming under President Obama too, but leave that aside. Well, um, it's been on a downward slide anyway since 2000, right, since the peak. 
really. There have been, there have been temporary Absol- spikes. Absolutely. But yes, it's been coming well, down. Well, thank you. you, you you're, you're aware of the reality. Oh, of the which facts? Yes. So many. Oh, yes, we're aware of the facts. And no alternative facts. These are the real facts. And by the way, that whole idea of alternative facts is so offensive to me. I'm, I'm the son of a scientist. Um, you don't have alternative facts, right? <laughs> Certain things that are empirically demonstrable, they really are there. Now, back to to what I, what I was saying before I got um, sort of di- digressed, uh, was uh, attracted by this uh, irresistible digression. <laughs> In any event, uh, I'm asked all the time, well, given that he appointed Neil Gorsuch, given that he appointed Nikki Haley, who I think is has been by far the most positive member of this administration so far. I'm a great fan of, of, uh, of Ambassador Haley. Uh, given the fact that he has appointed these people and the stock market is booming and the economy is doing well, uh, do you wish you had voted for Trump? And the answer is no, uh, I don't because I think – and people say, well, what grade would you give him? And I think most charitably one would have to give him an incomplete right now because – and again, the impact on the Republican Party, uh, the impact on comedy, which is – and I don't mean comedy, C-O-M-E-D-Y. I mean comedy, uh, C-O-M-I-T-Y. Right. Uh, the, the ability of Americans to get along with each other, uh, to follow the spirit of the book of Isaiah, come let us reason together, which is what the Bible calls us to do. And I would remind a lot of my fellow religious conservatives about that. Um, but why uh, an incomplete? That fascinates me. Because w- what information do you think is missing or, or sort of yet to be revealed that you think could allow you to pass some sort of judgment on okay let me let me give you my my fantasy now my wife derides me for this uh uh, my my wife who's my partner in all things uh after it which is hard for me to believe 32 years uh of marriage um she uh she is is much more um skeptical less reconciled to the fact that trump could be our president for the next three and a half years um, I, I, my great hope is that the president will get better help at the White House, which, by the way, that has been realized. I, I wrote a book years ago, which was an award-winning book and, and, and one that I still believe in, called The Shadow Presidents, which was about White House chiefs of staff. Mm-hmm. And there is no question that the appointment of General Kelly should help a very dysfunctional White House. But that should be a beginning, not not a goal. Although General Kelly and, was on the tip of the spear when it came to enforcing the travel ban. Yes, I know. And which I think you have that a very real was, problem with. I do. I do. But again, the what I what we were talking about before, you'll you'll and because you're obviously aware of this, it it began originally as a Muslim ban. And then in the desire to allow it to pass constitutional muster uh, the uh, uh, the Muslim ban has transmogrified into a travel ban, and then it's travel ban too. And th- the whole point is it's the worst of gestural politics. It would do nothing to make America safer. It makes our country less safe, in my opinion, and mm-hmm. probably in yours. In any event, the, the, the point about this is that my dream, my wish, my prayer 
for the Trump administration would be that the president becomes one of those very rare human beings who can change in a profound and fundamental way at age 70. Uh, it rarely happens. It it could, you know, God, God can do miracles. Right. And, and that but Michael, the, you're, a, you're a, an academic of history. <laughs> you have written so many books on American society and politics. Has it ever, has it ever happened before? Well, I, yeah, I will tell you again, this is, it's the, the, uh, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, sort of example, where Prince Hal is changes his fundamental character when he ascends to the throne. Now he didn't ascend to the throne when he was seventy, but there there is the the same idea about Harry Truman. Uh, there was very little in President Truman's background that led us to believe that he would become uh, a a great president or near great president. I, I mean, he was, Truman is now rated sixth in those polls of American historians. Mm-hmm. And again, he was widely underestimated and he became a different person. The presidency changed him. Uh, you could say the same thing about Lincoln. Uh, you could say the same thing about many. Gra- now, uh, President Trump is not going to be a Lincoln. He's not going to be a Truman. Um, but I, I, again, to to understand to learn from history what it takes to to become a successful president that is not too much to hope for it seems to me if president trump would allow himself to be counseled uh, by by some cooler and and wiser heads now do i think that's likely to happen i think it's very unlikely to happen uh have equally unlikely things happen in american history yeah, there, there are all kinds of things that have happened in American history that that would have surprised. For instance, uh, when when Theodore Roosevelt, who was, you could say, one of the most bellicose, warlike figures in all of American politics and was a war hero because of San Juan Hill and the Spanish-American War, would anyone have predicted that, that Theodore Roosevelt would win the Nobel Peace Prize for brokering peace at, at between... Russia and Japan in 1905? No. Unexpected. Uh, and, and, and again, uh, would, would it be – we had a very successful vote uh, this week at, at the UN that Ambassador Haley negotiated. For the first time, mm-hmm. they got Russia and China to vote to impose 15 to nothing sanctions on North Korea. And that's a positive development. Um, may those positive developments continue. Now, what am, what am I doing? You know, there's this old story, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this. They talk about the difference between an optimist and a, and a pessimist is when um, uh, you uh, give a, a pessimist uh, a pony for a birthday. Uh, the pessimist says, oh, no, I'm going to have to clean up all that poop that the pony leaves behind. And then if you give an optimist a room full of uh, feces uh, for a birthday, the optimist <laughs> dives into the room full of feces and says, there's got to be a pony in there somewhere. <laughs> I've actually never, and, never heard that before. <laughs> well, this is my, my, my reaction to the Trump administration. There's got to be a pony in there somewhere. So you're saying we're staring down a room full of feces is what you're basically saying. It's, 
it's well it doesn't feel like that i mean because every day honestly and this is this is terrible as a talk show host because easily i could follow some of what exists on cable news on tv and fill up three hours every day with the latest outrage and stupidity and and stumbling and and embarrassment by the president and parts of his administration. I mean, I, I, that that interchange between Stephen Miller and Jim Acosta, and that's being hailed by some conservatives as the equivalent of the Lincoln-Douglas debate. Excuse me. I this is when the new immigration on... policy was rolled out, by the way. Which, by the way, how how do you feel about that? This significant it would be the as they mentioned the most significant change to America's immigration policy since 1965, unlikely to pass Congress. However, the messaging well, that goes behind that, I mean, what do, you, what do you think about that? I Look, I think that part of what they are doing there, and this is something that I spoke with Senator Flake about this, as a matter of fact, and Senator Flake, like me, is a big uh, supporter of immigration reform, the immigration reform that was courageously put forward by President George W. Bush, and then uh, was also put forward by President Obama and has been supported for years and years by Senator McCain and, and uh, Senator John Kyle of Arizona mm-hmm. and all kinds of enlightened conservatives. Part of what that immigration reform contained was a change whereby there would be some kind of point system where in legal immigration uh, we would give priority to the immigrants, it wouldn't be done by lottery. It would be done based upon the people who would benefit the United States most. And and by the way, even the change that was introduced uh, by the uh, two senators, Senator Perdue of Georgia and Senator Cotton of Arkansas, which, by the way, is another mistake. Why, if you're introducing an immigration bill, have two white Southerners being the members of the caucus who are introducing that that bill, but okay. I don't know. You tell me, this, Michael. <laughs> well, it's just, it's just again, it's brain dead, frankly. But so, and, what do and you it's make brain, of it? It's, as, it's also as brain a dead. It's uh, uh, as a policy. I think there are elements of it that incorporate things that were in immigration reform that Bush proposed, that Obama proposed, like creating some kind of a point system and priority for mm-hmm. for immigrants with skills that we need. Fine, but you cannot slice the levels of, Ill- of of legal immigration. If you slice the levels of legal immigration, you're going to get more illegal immigration. Mm-hmm. And it's cruel and it's stupid and it's economically bad policy and it's wrong. And my understanding is this, and I, I get this from some off-the-record conversations, frankly, is they're introducing this bill because, remember, President Trump, he makes the best deals, his, all the art of the deal, that this is sort of an opening bid, and they're hoping that when they increase the numbers from 500,000 to 1 million or a million and a half, that, that they can compromise on the number of legal immigrants we admit. Uh, uh, and that this is sort of a starting and then get point something done. for negotiation. Okay, again, there must be a pony in there somewhere. <laughs> but uh, is, is this a, um, a, a useful? Uh, contribution to the conversation, well, not as the rollout played out, and especially having Stephen Miller. And and the idea that they are now seriously talking about appointing Stephen Miller, who I don't know, but I found him singularly unimpressive. Uh, He would be the new White House. (laughs) 
<laughs> communications director replacing the uh, late lamented Anthony Scaramucci, who's uh, uh, 10 days in office. Uh, as as I said, people should be singing a new song, uh, Mooch, We Hardly Knew Ye. Uh <laughs> But, but again, it's it, you, it, you, some, if somebody wrote this screenplay, uh, no one would believe it. But he, here's the it, thing it, about it, it. it: it's it's not a screenplay, right? And I know that you you, know, you you have these conversations for hours every day, and to some degree, you have to be able to laugh about the ridiculousness of some of the things that you you must be forced to talk about these days. But you you keep coming back. Look, if I just listened to this conversation and I said, I wondered how Michael Medved feels about the president, I would walk away saying, I think he's very pessimistic about this president. And yet you keep coming back to this idea of hope that you are optimistic in some way. I still don't quite understand what that is based on other than the fact that you want to be hopeful about it. Okay, it's based on the fact that, for instance, uh, sort of the forgotten man in American politics right now is the second most powerful individual in Washington. And it's someone who is a personal friend of mine and who I greatly admire and I wish would be president of the United States someday, whose name is Paul Ryan. And I know Speaker Ryan has, uh, (laughs) because he's been trying to do the right thing, has generated a lot of hostility from the left and a lot of hostility from the right. But there are good people like like Paul, like uh, Majority Leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, uh, there are a dozen U.S. senators, by the way, of both parties that I, I greatly admire, who are patriots and and statesmanlike, and want to bring our party back. There are members of President Trump's cabinet who are out- outstanding people uh, with with great competence and honorable records and um, a a patriotic approach for our country, and and some of whom are doing a pretty good work in in a very quiet way when i was in washington recently uh and and we we did a broadcast the radio syndicator for whom i work um did a series of broadcasts from the white house lawn and uh, the administration made available all kinds of uh, officials to speak with us and one of the officials i spoke with was an old friend acquaintance uh dr ben carson who, yes, it was an odd appointment because he has no background at all in housing and urban development, where he's now the cabinet secretary, but he did grow up in public housing. And he is attempting in a quiet way to reform a federal department that has not, not operated particularly well. And, and Dr. Carson is a profoundly decent, uh, well-intentioned, generous, public-spirited uh, individual. And again, even the Trump administration uh, is is full of people like that. I believe that General Kelly um, is is someone who uh, clearly uh, is is an American patriot. And by the way, not he's non ideological, and he's and I don't believe he's drunk the Trump Kool Aid either. So my optimism, Amna, is based on on the idea that. Charles Krauthammer, who is somebody else I, I greatly admire. Dr. Krauthammer uh, wrote a piece recently about the guardrails holding and uh, talking about the fact that, yes, Trump has tested some of the way that our government and our politics operate. But so far, 
at least. You could say the thing is bent, but it hasn't broken. And uh, the fact that 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 um, on, on st- just the stupid stuff from the very beginning, you know, the the claim of the inaugural crowd, which, by the way, he still hasn't acknowledged that he did not have more people at his inauguration than than President Obama. Uh, the fact that he he makes up stuff about getting calls from the head of the Boy Scouts that this was the greatest this was the greatest speech they'd ever had in the Boy Scouts of America. I was a Boy Scout, by the way. Oh yeah, and I I was, and I was thinking, listening to the president's speech. What would I have felt if I were at that Boy Scout jamboree? What would you have felt? I, it, a, appalled, and and what was most appalling was the lot of the scouts were cheering. This is what we cannot allow. And it is important that the the president of the Boy Scouts did publicly apologize to scouting for the president introducing this harshly partisan and political tone to what should have been the slam dunk for any president. Mm -hmm. Look, if you're looking at a White House schedule, and I've written about the White House staff extensively in, in, in the past, this is the easiest thing in the world. Any White House speechwriter, oh, great, I get to prepare the president to speak to the Boy Scouts. You can speak about patriotism. You can speak about the American past. You can speak about the ideals of scouting. I mean, one of the things that is striking to me is if you look at the uh, this Boy Scout oath, uh, the qualities that a Boy Scout is supposed to exemplify are, let me, let me put it graciously, are, are qualities – that the president could use uh, and and try to exemplify more fully in order to redeem his presidency. That is very gracious. That is very gracious. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I try. I, you, you seem to be going out of your way, I will say. It does sound like a, v- a very real struggle for you, a very real sort of inner conflict to try to remain optimistic in the face of all the facts and, and things coming at you these days. But I... I want to ask you from a different perspective, which is to say that your place in the world, your place in this country in particular, is is very unique and, and very different to millions of other Americans. And then that optimism, that hope that you feel comes kind of from a safe distance, right? I mean, you are you're a straight white male in America. And right. And, 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 a and the, white the immutable, male group- well, the immutable parts of your identity haven't been targeted or uh, or attacked by this president or his cabinet or his campaign rhetoric or some of the policies they've put forward. And so you mentioned the institutions bending and not breaking. I guess my question is, you know, if if a, a couple of those parts of the institution do snap, you won't feel it first. You would likely not feel it first. And maybe it's easier to be optimistic from that vantage point. Is that fair? I think to some extent it is, except I think that 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 falls into what I believe to be a liberal delusion. And you'll pardon me on this, Amna, is that I think there is a tendency on the left, and it's one of the things that has crippled the left. And frankly, it's one of the reasons that they, though she won the popular vote, Hillary lost the election, is a tendency to divide America into its component parts and a failure to recognize the extent to which we're in this stuff together. And as privileged as I may be to have been enjoyed a successful career, to have enjoyed a long-term marriage and children and now our first grandchild, and, and I have a wonderfully blessed life. Uh, however, 
my life and what I care about most, yes, it involves the future of my granddaughter. It involves the future of my kids. It involves uh, things like public safety. In other words, there are very, very few people who are so cocooned in America, either for better or for worse, that we aren't uh, in, in engaged with one another. And 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 the 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 answer that I would give to people who feel personally assaulted by this administration, and and by the way, I I have been in contact because I've been such an outspoken advocate for immigration reform. I I actually just in the the because of talk radio, I get contacted all the time by undocumented people mm-hmm. who um and, and and they are of course have been the main targets of this administration. And it is ridiculous and hateful to me that they are talking about uh, the beneficiaries of DACA and people who were brought to the United States as children have lived basically only in America. In some cases from the time they're two years old, have Mm -hmm. only no English, by the way, no, no Spanish and anything like that. And and right now the administration thinks uh, that we want to use the power of government and money from taxpayers to go through the expensive and painful process of ripping these people out of their lives and dumping them uh, to a country that they don't know. That's to me is hateful. And yes, I understand that there are people who are far more subject to the, the horrors of the Trump presidency, potential horrors than I am. However, here's, here's the basic point that I would make is there was a a phrase uh in the early zionist movement in in uh in hebrew which is ein brera which means there's no alternative and that was what some of the the refugees who were trying to get uh to mandatory palestine uh believed uh in in the years immediately before there's no alternative there's no alternative but that situation really pertains to people who are worried about the Trump administration. In other words, you can be pessimistic, but, okay, what is the alternative for trying to make the best of this situation? And the it seems to me that it's extremely ill-advised and very destructive to use the slogan resistance. What does resistance mean here? Uh, but this, this president is not going to be... Uh, impeached. He may be impeached by the House of Representatives if the Democrats take the House. That could happen. But he won't be removed from office uh, because one of the things that history teaches is that people in the president's own party never and never, never have and probably never will vote to remove a president of their own party as senatorial votes. And, and basically, this is something that a lot of people don't acknowledge. When President Andrew Johnson was impeached in, by the House in 1868, uh, the, there were zero, zero Democratic senators who voted for his impeachment. And he was a, he was a Democrat who had been elected together with a Republican. And when, when President uh, Clinton was impeached, uh, there, there wasn't a single Democratic senator who voted to remove him from office. And so the 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 whole idea of resistance, um, it it seems to me is to an extent meaningless and destructive. And 
What it opposes is those forces in Washington, both Republicans and Democrats, who understand, okay, we're in this situation. Now, let's work together to make it as beneficial as it possibly can be for for the good of the nation. And yeah, uh, Michael, at I, the same time, I would have to say people who probably self-identify as members of the resistance, and I know that it's sort of a, a amalgamous group, but people who in some way say I'm opposed to the fundamental idea of this presidency, a lot of them were the ones who showed up at the airports to show their protest again when the travel ban was implemented. A lot of them are the ones who have been showing up in their senators and representatives' offices to oppose the health care reform bill that uh, that some Republican senators eventually came to oppose because they said this is not what my constituents want. So, you know, the idea that it is one ideology in some way coherent, I, I agree with you, it, it is not that. But I do think that a lot of people who may find uh, that they are opposed to the general idea that that Mr. Trump is president right now fuel some of the basic policy opposition on the basis of that. Do you think that's fair? Again, I have no problem at all with people protesting uh, on policy, uh, with people resisting a particular policy or even a series of policies. Right. My problem, again, goes back to what we were talking about much earlier in the conversation, Amna, which is this idea that it's all about Trump's personality. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you are so appalled at his personality, and I understand it, I'm sympathetic to it, that I, I just am going to resist the reality of the Trump presidency. That's not constructive. And the fact is that there are some issues where, like it or not, you have to work with the guy. And that would be my word to my liberal listeners and to Democrats out there is, for instance, I am very hopeful, and I've, I've heard this from members of Congress. Right now, as we're speaking, uh, the, the members of the House and the Senate are home for a five-week recess, mm-hmm. and they're getting an earful. And apparently what I have just heard is what they're starting to hear is not go back there and beat those rascally Democrats or go back there and crush President Trump. It's Go back there and work together and do the fix on Obamacare that needs to be done, which should not be that difficult and should not be impossible. Just stop the partisan sniping and and sort of death wish politics mm-hmm. and, and actually do something that benefits the American people. Uh, one of the, the, the slogans that I, you know, I, I, I'm, it now escapes me, but it's, it's, uh, Oh, I know it actually was in a, a recent film uh, is let's do some good today. Uh, it's apparently it was a film about Mormon missionaries and <laughs> apparently Mormon missionaries begin the day, at least in many missions by saying, all right, let's get up and do some good today. Mm-hmm. Maybe in the spirit that, that seemed to flicker and, and, I found actually inspiring after Steve Scalise was killed, uh, was wounded, and mm-hmm. thank God he's he's going to be okay. He's been a guest on my show and somebody else that I, I actually like and respect. After Congressman Scalise was wounded and and the the heroic Capitol Police, uh, both of whom were African American, as as people know, uh, rescued the Republican members of the Republican softball team, baseball team. After that happened, there was a moment where there was some recognition. Hey, Republicans, Democrats, 
we're in this together. That would be my my big plea for getting through what is not going to be an easy presidency for thoughtful conservatives or for thoughtful liberals, but but is our reality and making the most of it, (laughs) finding the pony in there somewhere, I think is incumbent on all of us. Michael, I got to say, I was kind of hoping you were going to end with a Game of Thrones reference again, just to bring it full circle. <laughs> but maybe we can we can find a way to work that in next time. I have a whole host of topics I was hoping we might be able to cover, but I've taken up enough of your time today. And I just can't thank you enough for making the time to talk to me. Well, it's it's a great pleasure. And, and uh, I will look forward to speaking again. And just one quick Game of Thrones reference oh, to please. conclude this. Please do. Um Okay, I have to be one of the few living Americans. I have never seen a minute of Game of Thrones. <gasps> Me um, too. I, we can make that confession uh, here together. I've actually never seen it. You know, I don't understand. <laughs> See, this is one of those things. There, there's certain big abiding mysteries about American life that I don't begin to be able to solve. And one of them has to do with the amount of uh, TV and screen time that that, that people spend. My life is so crowded. We don't have a TV at home. We've never had a TV at home. Never? And wow. Our kids, never. Our, my, my kids, when I left my parents' home and started college at 16, um, I was TV addicted like most kids are. And then, uh, and, and this is actually kind of interesting and sort of old school, but when I started at Yale, uh, you weren't allowed to have TV in your dorm rooms. So all of a sudden I went cold turkey and then I realized, who has time for this? The, the, a typical American now watches at least 30 hours a week of TV. And then when you add to that video games and, and, and various other times you spend in front of screens, it's more time than people spend working. I, I don't know how that happens with people because – so, again, uh, do I feel – I've read enough about Game of Thrones. I think I know something about it. But, uh, <laughs> I love I, that I you've read it. about it, even though you've never watched <laughs> a minute of it. That's fabulous. No. No, it's just it, there isn't enough time. I mean, I'm, I'm too busy watching the latest White House press briefing, which, as I understand, has some resemblance to Game of Thrones anyway. <laughs> there, there it is. There is our last Game of Thrones reference. You did it. I I appreciate it. Amna, what a great joy speaking with you. Thank you so much for making the time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me. At Navazistan. That's N A W A Z I S T A N, or use the hashtag Uncomfortable Talk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>